2: I'm working out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we are.
1: Wednesday, December twenty eighth,
0: two thousand twenty
2: two. People, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. I hope everybody is ready for what should be a fun midweek episode of the Torres Sports Podcast. Here is what you need to know about today's show. We are going to open college football. We're about four weeks through now. We're about a third of the way through the, the season. We know a lot of stuff, including probably that at the top of the sport, it is Georgia, Ohio State, and Alabama in some order. You pick who you want in what order, but those are the top three. So the question becomes, Who's number four? Hmm. Think about it. Chew on it. I'm going to go through the pretenders, the contenders, and who I actually think is the fourth best team in college football right now. From there, we will continue the college football conversation. Alabama, it's been a few weeks since that Texas game. What do we really know about Alabama? Well, I'll tell you this. We had one Alabama player say something on Tuesday that I believe Alabama, if you weren't scared of them before, I think Alabama might turn a quarter. They have a big game against Arkansas on Saturday, and one player said something that would have me concerned if I was an Arkansas fan. Finally, we'll wrap with a little college hoops. Wasn't planning on doing college hoops two weeks in a row, but or two days in a row, I should say, but Memphis got their, uh, their punishment, if you even want to call it that, from the IARP. They've been investigated for five years now surrounding the recruitment of James Wiseman, we talk about what happened, what the punishment was. It's pretty minor, what it means for Memphis, but what it also means for the other teams that haven't received their punishments yet, Arizona, LSU, Kansas, Louisville, on and on and on. Before we get started, one quick thing that I do want to mention. Uh, the NFL Pick'em Challenge presented by Bracket Fanatics with the Monday night game complete. Don't know how many of you picked the Cowboys. We are now through three weeks so for those of you who have entered, congratulations. If you have not entered, make sure to do so. Go to Bracket Fanatics. Join Bracket Torres. And I want to congratulate our Week 3 winner. How about our buddy Vitaly? I went ahead and sent him a message. Vitaly lives uh, in overseas in the Ukraine, uh, and he won our NFL Pickup Week 3 Challenge. So you talk about the spread of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast in the Ukraine, shout out to Vitaly. If you have not signed up, listen, I'm gonna keep telling you, for another, what, 14, 15 weeks, this is a great deal, okay? NFL Pick'Em Challenge, remember, you can sign up weekly, you get a $100 cash prize. Every weekly winner, Vitaly gets a cash prize. Federal Thrash won week two, week one was Reno Gambler. So I bring it up because each week we have a new $100 winner. And we also, at the end of the season, have a thousand dollar cash prize for the winner with the most total picks over all eighteen weeks. So, one weekly winner, uh, eighteen uh, over the course of the over the course of the season, we have a thousand dollar cash prize. This is the best deal. Go! We're just giving away cash. We are just giving away cash. So, congratulations to Vitaly, our week three winner. By the way, I should mention as well, our presenting sponsor. Betfred Sportsbook. Betfred, oh my goodness. Can I tell you what Betfred is doing this week? I told you that nobody takes care of their customers better than Betfred. Well, I know we got a ton of listeners in Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky. They are giving away two free tickets to the Thursday night game between the Dolphins and the Cincinnati Bengals in Cincinnati. Remember, Betfred is the official presenting sponsor of the Aaron Torres Podcast, Aaron Torres Media, but also the gambling sponsor of the Cincinnati Bengals. Well... Legalized gambling is coming to Ohio on January 1st. Betfred is already making a splash. And as I said, giving away two free tickets to this Thursday night's game. Dolphins versus Bengals as of right now. Tua versus Joe Burrow, okay? Two free tickets. Follow Betfred Sports on Twitter for more information. You will be automatically entered to win there. But follow them for more details. With that said... Let's get to how about we get to the topic of the day and the topic of the day. Listen, it's the middle of the week in the middle of college football season. So let's do some reflecting big picture. Let's do some existential stuff. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see my hands flying all over the place. But we are through four weeks in college football. And I think things are starting to come together. We're starting to figure out who's legit, who's not. And there are still the teams that we have to figure out, right? UCLA plays a Friday night game this weekend against Washington. None of us have seen UCLA so far. We'll find out if they're good. Um, you know, Michigan, I think we're still learning about. We're going to talk about them in a minute. USC, we're still learning about. Is Utah good? They lost week one and they've been rolling ever since. So we don't know a lot about some, but we're starting to learn quite a bit about the sport, Right. We know that Kansas is maybe the most awesome story that we've not only had in this sport this year, but in recent years, 4-0 and Kansas Jayhawks. How about them Kansas Jayhawks? We know on the opposite side that Michigan State is very bad. Don't need to talk about the fact that Mel Tucker is guaranteed $95 million over the next decade. I'm not writing those checks. You're almost certainly not writing those checks. It ain't our problem. But I think one thing that is also very clear through four weeks of the college football season is that there is a top Top three, excuse me, in some pecking order in college football. It is Georgia, it is Ohio State, and it is Alabama. Now, who are the top three in what order? That is up to you to decide. I think there are some people that, after the way Ohio State dominated Wisconsin last week, they think Ohio State should be number one. There are others who believe that Georgia, based on everything they did against Oregon and South Carolina, should be number one. There are some people that probably even think that Alabama should be number one. But I think everybody kind of thinks in that order, those are the three best teams in college football. And so with it, it brings up a fascinating question for week five of the college football season, which we are about to head into. That question, who's number four? And so what I want to do, because this has been a debate across college football, if you listen to other shows, you shouldn't be, just should be focusing on the Aaron Torres podcast. But if you listen to other shows, um, it's been a question that I think a lot of people are trying to figure out. Is it this team? Is it that team? And I think there's about probably seven or eight contenders, seven or eight fan bases that would make the argument that they should be in the conversation. And what I want to do is peel back the layers and tell you who I think is a contender for that spot, who is a pretender and who I ultimately think is number 4 in college football and by the way maybe some of you guys disagree and think that the teams that I'm about to mention are ahead of some of the top 3 but I think those top 3 are pretty set in stone. So now in terms of some of the teams they're kind of on the in the top 10 or on the fringes of the top 10, I think there's a couple that right now I think they're very much pretenders and I think most even their fans would agree with that, right? I think Tennessee Coming out of the weekend. They're ranked in the top 10. The fan base is fired up. But I think if you listen to Monday's show, we talked about Josh Hype's post game comments. Even Josh Hype knows they're ahead of schedule. Even Tennessee fans know that Florida game was awesome. But we nearly lost to Pitt in week two. Uh, Florida is far from the best team in college football. We are going to enjoy this moment right now, but with Alabama still on the schedule, with Georgia still on the schedule, and some tough games ahead, including a trip to LSU the next time Tennessee plays, they're on a bye week right now, they play at LSU the following week. I think Tennessee fans, I don't think anybody would argue they're the number four team in the country, even if they are well ahead of schedule under Josh Hype. Staying in the SEC, I think we can probably say pretty definitively, Kentucky, Great story. Mark Stoops, I told you, I believe he's the most underrated coach in college football. Him and P.J. Fleck are 1-1A. I don't think even Kentucky fans think that they're number four in the country, right? Um, First of all, the schedule has left a lot to be desired. Beat Northern Illinois, Miami of Ohio, and Youngstown State. They did go to the Swamp and win. That's really important. But obviously that Florida team may be not quite as good as we thought. They're a little bit limited offensively. So I'm not taking away from what Kentucky did going to the Swamp and winning. But at the same time, I just think that you can't sit there and say they're number four. I think we're going to find that out in the coming weeks. They go to old Miss this week. They have South Carolina coming up. They have Mississippi State, which I think is a good football team that could potentially upset Texas A&M this weekend in a few weeks. So I don't think we can put Kentucky in that mix. I don't think we can put Penn State in that mix either. And Penn State to me is an interesting one because they're one, depending on how things go, I could see them getting into that conversation by the end of the year. They are of course coming off that incredibly dominant win at Auburn two weeks ago, but I think it's worth noting, are they that good or is Auburn just that bad a week before they played Penn state, Auburn struggled against San Jose state a week after Penn state, Auburn probably should have lost to Missouri, not once, but twice had two miracle plays to win that game. And so to me, I don't think you can put Penn State in there. What I will tell you, by the end of October, we're going to need to know everything that you need to know about Penn State. Fun fact, this week, Penn State plays Northwestern. The following week, they get a bye. Here are their three games after the bye, starting on October 15th. They play at Michigan, Minnesota at home, Ohio State at home. So you talk about maybe the toughest three-game stretch in college football, That just might be it as Penn State plays at Michigan, Minnesota at home, Ohio State at home, three straight weeks to end October. I'm not ready to put Penn State there. By the way, not ready to put Minnesota, the fighting PJ Flex there either uh, and keep it going. You know, I'm trying to think of some other teams that would be in that conversation. I don't think Oklahoma is there, not after last weekend. Listen, with Oklahoma, the thing that stands out to me, I would just say there's been too many ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys in this year one in Brent Venables. Now, I do think they can still get to the playoff. I do still think they could be a four seed, a three seed, win the big 12. But you look at this team over four games. It's been up and down, up and down, choppy waters, okay? Uh, against Kent State in week two, they scored seven first half points. They were up 7-3 before blowing out Kent State. Week three, they go to Nebraska, score 49 unanswered and absolutely destroy Nebraska. And then last week, of course, they could not get a stop against Adrian Martinez in Kansas State. So, Oklahoma is another one. I could see them getting there. I don't think they are they are there yet. Same with their cross-state rivals for now. It ain't going to be for very much longer. But for now, uh, Oklahoma State, they play at Baylor this week. Maybe they get themselves into the conversation. But I think it's really down to three different teams that I think you could make the argument for who's number four, Michigan, USC, and Clemson. I'll tell you this. I don't think it's Michigan- at least not right now. And I think if you look at the metrics and the advanced metrics and you look at the gambling statistics, people will tell you Michigan's probably the fourth best team in college football. I'm just going to be honest right now at this second, I'm not buying it. Okay. You look at Michigan, a couple things stand out. One, to their credit, and I talk about this all the time, I'm not going to discredit them for destroying the first three opponents on their schedule, but they played three group of five teams to open the season, Colorado State, Hawaii, UConn, all at home. I should mention, I saw my buddy Todd Furman uh, from, I think he works for CBS Sports now, used to be at Fox with me. Todd said that in his power rankings, UConn and Hawaii are among the five worst teams in college football. So did Michigan, was their start that impressive? Or more importantly, were they just playing bad, bad, bad football teams? By the way, UConn, they're, UConn's beat up. Okay, we're not even going to talk about UConn. They may have to start a defensive lineman at running back because they're down so many bodies coming into this week. That is a true story. So anyway. Long story short, I don't trust Michigan based off that early schedule. And what I would say is right now, the second, this is a reactionary segment. This is not who's going to be there at the end. This is not whose schedule does this for that. It's who is the fourth best team in college football right now. I don't think it's the teams I mentioned, Penn State, Oklahoma, Tennessee, whoever, Kentucky, whatever, Minnesota. And I don't think it's Michigan because what we saw on Saturday concerns me. Listen, First of all, they still haven't even gone on the road yet. And I know they go to Iowa this week and they're a heavy favorite, but they, they were at home against Maryland. And let's be honest, they had two plays go their way that if they go the other way, they might lose that game. The opening kickoff of the game, Maryland fumbled. Michigan recovered. They scored literally one second later to go up 7 nothing. And then there was a very controversial interception in the middle of the game that was ruled in favor of Michigan that probably shouldn't have been when Maryland was driving in Michigan territory. And so I look at that Michigan game, first power five opponent. By the way, don't tell me Maryland's good, by the way. Don't tell me Maryland's good because they almost lost to SMU the week before. And so when I look at that game, I'm just sitting there saying that Michigan team did not look like the dominant team of the first few weeks. And is Michigan that good or is the competition just that bad? On defense, what I saw was a team that was very much on its heels all game long. Remember last year with Aiden Hutchinson, David Ajabo, all those star players on that defense, Dax Hill, who was a first-round draft pick, they dictated things to the other team. Last Saturday, Maryland dictated things to Michigan and had them on their heels. I would also add, J.J. McCarthy, I'm just saying, I could be dead wrong. He could throw for 350 yards, Four touchdowns this weekend against Iowa. But on the flip side, what I have seen is a very talented, high upside quarterback that also plays very recklessly. We see this across college football and the NFL year after year after year. What's the big conversation about Carson Wentz in the NFL? What's the big conversation about Jameis Winston? They're so naturally gifted that they rely on their gifts too much. Carson Wentz, he always is hurt because he thinks he's going to run some guys over. Jameis Winston throws a ton of interceptions because he trusts that arm a little bit too much. And I see the same with JJ McCarthy right now, incredible talent, but he makes a lot of mistakes. He took a couple bad sacks last week and he took a couple bad sacks last year in big plays in crucial moments. And so to me, I'm not saying Michigan can't get there by the end of the year, not saying they might not be 11 and 0 going into Ohio state, but right now, this second, it makes it hard for me to believe they're the fourth best team in the country. I'll keep it going. USC. USC was the one I was like this close, like this close to having USC at number four in this poll, in the conversation. But the conversation again, remember on Monday's show I did, who am I least concerned about? And I said USC. But the conversation isn't who I'm least concerned about, whose schedule is the best, who I think is most likely to make the playoff. It is who is number four right now? Who is the fourth best team in college football today, this second? It's hard for me to make the argument for USC. Now, on the positive side, on the positive side with USC, we know what the positives are. The offense is humming. I know they just scored 17 points against Oregon State, but they're still averaging 42 on the year, had 66 in their season opener, and 41 on in their Pac-12 opener at Stanford. They have weapons everywhere. Caleb Williams can be a little erratic at times, but has been overall really good over the course of his career. He's got so many weapons, Travis Dye, back-to-back 100-yard rushing games for Travis Dye at running back. Um, And the defense is very opportunistic. Listen, I've talked about it twice on the show now. You can't criticize USC for saying they don't play defense when their defense leads the country in turnovers forced, when they have 14 total turnovers forced over the course of this season. But just because they're forcing a lot of turnovers, just because the offense is good, I don't think it means they're the definitive fourth-best team in the country. One, as we discussed previously, what happens when that defense stops turning the ball over? I remember having this conversation with Iowa last year. Remember when Iowa started? I think five or six and zero, and everyone was like, "That team could make the playoff." And they were forcing a, they were forcing at one point like four turnovers per game. And I said, if somebody just takes care of the football against them and doesn't beat themselves, Iowa is beatable. And then they ended up losing a couple games. I think one was to Purdue and one was to Wisconsin, maybe. But if you just played in a phone booth with Iowa and didn't beat yourself, they were very beatable. And I don't think USC is quite as beatable because that offense is so good. But I do think the the defense, when it's not forcing a million turnovers, has real questions. And so to me, when we're having a conversation about who's number four right now today, it can't be a team that I think if they went and played on a neutral field against most of these other teams would not be favored. Michigan would destroy USC. Just they would just run. I don't even think they pass the ball. They just run the ball right at USC, make them stop them. I think Minnesota of all teams would give USC trouble. I think Kentucky would give USC trouble. I think Tennessee would give USC trouble. I think Ole Miss, ironically, with Lane Kiffin, the former USC head coach, would give USC trouble. So to me, USC is a great story. I think they can make the playoff based on the schedule. I don't think they're the fourth best team in the country right now, which does bring me to who I do think is the fourth best team in the country right now, and that is. The Clemson Tigers, C-L-E-M-S-O-L. I don't know if I did that right. Clemson fans, judge me, whatever. Um, I do think it's Clemson. And I know it's not cool to say nice things about Dabo Sweeney and it's this and it's that. But I look at this team and I think the, the one thing that we do forget about college football is teams get better throughout the year. Teams get worse throughout the year. But I do. There are certain teams that if you just don't have the pieces, none of it matters, Right. Like USC, I just don't think they have the pieces on defense. So what is it like Like they might win 9, 10, 11 games, but their flaws in September are going to be their flaws in November and December. Um, you know, I'm just trying to think of another team. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Uh, Kentucky, I, I don't know. Kentucky can't run the ball. They can't block right now. Is that going to get fixed? I don't know. But Clemson, I think Clemson, you look at what people perceive to be the weakness. I'm not as worried. And I think the the strengths are starting to show up as well. Now, in terms of the weaknesses, people say, oh, the defense isn't as good as we thought. Well, is the defense not as good as we thought? Or did they just play a really good Wake Forest team last week? Because I think it's easy to separate the two, right? I think it's easy to sit there and say, oh, you know, uh, well, uh, you know, they, they look bad against Wake Forest. Well, look, Wake Forest is who they are. They have a brand. They score a lot of points. They know that they can't beat you in a 14 to 10 game. So they throw the ball a lot. They throw the ball downfield a lot as Clemson learned the hard way. And I think Clemson surviving that game said something to me. It's not just about the statistics and the raw this and the that and what does it all mean? What I saw from Wake Forest was a game team at home, a legitimate top 25 team that had the blueprint to beat Clemson and Clemson found a way to win. And so one, I'm not as worried about that offense or that defense for Clemson because I think the Wake Forest offense is probably as good as Clemson is going to see the rest of the regular season. Now, once they get to an ACC championship game, a playoff, that's a different conversation, a bowl game. But I think that's the best offense they will see all year. Now, in terms of the D, the, the offense for Clemson, I got to say we've criticized DJ Uyangalale a lot on this show over the last couple of years. I think we got to give him credit where he was due. Saturday, best game of his career, zero doubt. Zero doubt for DJ, 371 yards passing, five touchdowns, no interceptions, and no, I don't think he's a finished product yet, but if he's a lot better than last year, we have to give him credit for it too, right? He's not elite, but last year he completed 56%, 57% of his passes. This year he's completing 63.5%. Last year he had nine total touchdowns and 13 starts. He's already got 10 this year. And so I think what we're learning about Clemson, I think what we will learn when they're not playing Wake Forest offense, they don't need that defense to, they don't need the offense to be elite. They just need it to be good enough. Well, now I look at them. They got a quarterback who I think is a lot better than I thought he was even two, three weeks ago. Some of their receivers look pretty darn good. You know, you go across the list, Bo Collins looks like one of those Clemson receivers, 13 catches, 17 yards per catch, four touchdowns. Joseph Ngata, 17 yards per catch. Antonio Williams has a touchdown. Davis Allen, the tight end, looked really good. A couple touchdowns this season, including one against Wake Forest. So when I look at this Clemson team, I'll be honest, I had my concerns after Georgia Tech, but I think they look better than I thought, and I think they're probably the fourth best team in the country. It's not where you're going to be five months from now. It's, It's not how the schedule shapes up. It is where are you today, and I believe Clemson, you put them on a neutral field against USC. I like their chances. You put them on a neutral field against Michigan. I like their chances. You put them on a neutral field against any of these other teams. I like their chances. To me, it's early. It's subject to change. And Clemson's got a tough one this weekend against Wake uh, against North uh, NC State at home. But I do believe that Clemson is the fourth best team in college football right now. All right, good first segment of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. This is what we're going to do, though. We are going to take a quick break. We are going to come back, and when we come back, when we come back, when we come back, an Alabama player said something very interesting on Tuesday, and if I'm an Arkansas fan, I'm worried. I'll explain to you what that is next. We'll take a quick break, and guess who will be right back?
1: No purchase necessary for prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All
2: right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. I do want to kind of keep the college football conversation going. And I do want to talk about a, a really intriguing thing that I saw on, I guess it was Tuesday afternoon, as it pertains to one of the more interesting games in college football this coming weekend, Alabama at Arkansas. Alabama is a 17-and-a-half-point favorite in the Betfred Sportsbook. And I think it's one of the most anticipated games in college football, not only of this weekend, but of this season. Uh, you know, our tour is on the Hogs, guys. They are camping out. They are ready for the game down there. And I think we're going to learn a lot about both teams. I mean, obviously, if Arkansas wins, it speaks for itself. But also Alabama. Last couple of years, especially on the road, they've had a lot more close games than they have historically under Nick Saban. And so what I want to talk about now is exactly just that. The fact that Alabama has not looked like that vintage Alabama team over the last few years, especially when they go on the road. Well, all I'm going to tell you is on Tuesday, I saw some quotes from Alabama players. And I'll tell you this, if the Alabama players, and you know, Alabama guys don't say very much to the media but if they put their money where their mouth is i am just telling you the conversation about is georgia number 1 is ohio state number 1 alabama is going to be number 1 everyone in college football should be afraid if these alabama if what was said by the alabama players this week comes to fruition and i do think like this is one that probably takes a little bit of context and what it really comes down to is a couple of things one it's it's like i said a minute ago is that if you really look back over the last probably year year and a half especially back to last year We talked about it on this show all the time. That was not a vintage Alabama team. And by the way, it speaks to how incredible the Alabama program and brand is that in a year where they were not great, where they were not operating at the highest level, they still played for a national championship game against Georgia in Indianapolis. But I bring it up because if you go back to last year, this was a common denominator, a common conversation that we had on this show. And a lot of Alabama fans did not like it. But I said, this is not a vintage Alabama team. And the stats, the facts, the the scores of these games backed it up. Go back and look at Alabama's season last year. Two-point narrow win at Florida. Florida ended up firing their coach. So, you know, you can't sit there and say, well, Florida was great. No, no, no. Florida fired their coach, okay? Alabama won by two there. Later on in the season, they obviously lose to Texas A&M. Listen, teams lose. It happens. It's part of the deal. But then a few weeks later, they play LSU. They win by six. They can't run the ball. The Tennessee game, it was close going into the fourth quarter. Tennessee ran out of gas. They beat Arkansas by just a single touchdown at home. And then, of course, there was that Auburn game in the Iron Bowl where Alabama managed to eke out a victory in four overtimes before obviously going to the SEC championship game in a college football playoff. And so you can say whatever you want. I think most Alabama fans would agree. Last year was not a vintage team. And I think Nick Saban agrees because he said in this offseason that Alabama was going through a rebuilding situation last year, something that I agreed with. Just because they were ahead of schedule doesn't mean they weren't rebuilding, but they were in fact rebuilding last year. And so why I bring it up, and we're going to get to the quotes from Tuesday in a minute, but why I bring it up is I think we all thought, you know, coming into this year, okay, it's going to be different. A young team is now more mature. A young team is now more experienced. Um, They have a talent advantage at virtually every position. This Alabama team, as I said in the preseason, I said, I think this is going to be a vintage, scary Alabama team in college football this year. Instead, what happens? Week two, they go on the road and they survive by the skin of their teeth against Texas. Final score 2019. If Bryce Young doesn't do amazing Bryce Young things, they end up losing that game in Austin. And so to bring it full circle to Tuesday after that game and going into the Louisiana Monroe game, Nick Saban was furious, not because the team almost lost, but because he felt like the team was not playing with the edge needed to compete at the highest level. And frankly, the edge needed to win a national championship. Here is what Nick Saban said a few weeks ago about Alabama and their psyche coming into these big games. This is Nick Saban's exact quote, and you're going to hear it. You're going to hear it, you say, oh, yeah, Nick Saban definitely said that. He said, we used to play better on the road around here I that than what we played at home. I, because we had some hateful competitors on our team. And when they played on the road, they were mad at 100,000 people, not just the 11 guys they were playing against. They wanted to prove something to everybody. And as time has gone on, I think that maybe just winning the game has become the focus. That is what Nick Saban said. And if you talk about a way to describe a mean, nasty football team, he described some of his previous teams as having hateful competitors that they wanted to go into other stadiums and shut out and shut down 100,000 screaming fans as bad as they wanted to beat the 11 guys on the field. And so it's been funny over the last couple of weeks because we've gotten all these conversations about what's wrong with Bama. Is it this? Is it that? And I've thought that it's come back to what Nick Saban has said. They have not had that edge. And if they don't get that edge, they are not going to get back to where Alabama fans and Alabama players expect them to be, which is winning national championships. So why do I bring it up? Why do I bring it full circle? It is because on Tuesday, Alabama's players were asked about those quotes at media availability and boy oh boy I think Nick Saban's comments about needing more hateful competitors got to some of the players here is what Jordan Battle and All-American Safety said he said Saban likes to see an empty stadium I remember that feeling last year after we lost to Texas A&M Then we went to play Mississippi State after that and we put that beating on them and I saw him smiling towards the end of the game when Mississippi State's crowd got up and started leaving. That made him very happy. Getting back to that defense and trying to see coach happy like that, that's what we need to get back to. Henry Toto, All-American linebacker. Here is what he had to say. That's not who we are as Alabama talking about the Texas game. That's something that we weren't proud to put on film. This week, there was an emphasis on being physical, coming downhill and hitting downhill and playing hard. Coach tells us the story about playing on the road. They hate you when you walk into that stadium. That is the mentality that we have to embrace at Alabama. Finally, Will Anderson, my Heisman Trophy pick in the preseason that's not looking too good. He said, Coach Saban always talks about these hateful competitors And I'm starting to kind of see what he's saying. It's fun, he said, to be a hateful competitor. And so what I'm saying is this. This could be all talk by Bama players. It could mean absolutely nothing. But what I will tell you, point blank, end of story. If Alabama has flipped this switch, watch out. They have what I believe, and this is no disrespect to C.J. Stroud. They have what I believe to be the best quarterback in college football in Bryce Young. If that defense starts playing like hateful competitors the way that Nick Saban wants, I'm just telling you, they're as good as Alabama, they're as good as Ohio State, they're as good as Georgia, and they're probably going to run away with this national championship. And so again, it could be all talk, but I think we have to understand when Nick Saban says this stuff, it means something. And so it's been funny over the last probably year year and a half, especially last year but more importantly after the Texas game. Everybody's asking the question, What's wrong with Bama? Why are they not as dominant as they once were? And I've heard all the excuses or all the conversations. I don't know if they're excuses, but they're conversations. Well, Georgia's is now recruiting at a high level. They're stealing a couple players. Same with Texas A&M, same with Texas. Now Alabama doesn't have the depth and breadth of talent. I don't believe that. Kirby Smart has been at Georgia for five, six, seven years now. He's been recruiting at an elite level since he got there. Prior to Kirby Smart, there were other great recruiters in other parts of the country, other college football outposts, Urban Meyer at Ohio State. Um, you know, Jimbo Fisher's been at Texas A&M for five years. He's been recruiting in an elite level all of those years. Tom Herman, Charlie Strong have signed big time classes at Texas. So don't tell me that all of a sudden everybody else is starting to recruit at the level of Saban. Saban had the number has the number one class in 2023. In 2022, we know what happened with A&M. 2021, don't forget, Alabama had maybe the most historically great class relative to the rivals recruiting ranking or the uh, 24-7 recruiting rankings was one of the great classes of all time. So don't tell me that they don't have the players that they once did. By the way, don't tell me that they're not developing the players that they once did because one, that's an insult to Nick Saban and you never did insult Nick Saban. But two, I went ahead and looked it up today. Did you know Mel Kuyper's big board right now Top 35 players, so essentially players of the first round grade, Alabama has the most. Six players with a first round grade, top 35 overall, four of them on defense. Will Anderson, Henry Toto, uh, Jordan Battle, all the players that I mentioned. Jameer Gibbs, Bryce Young, I believe Eli Ricks was the last one. And so don't tell me that it's about not having players. They've had elite recruiting classes this whole time. They're developing them. They have the most NFL draft prospects. By the way, top 35, Alabama has six. Georgia has four. Clemson has two. Ohio State has three. So don't tell me they're not recruiting players. What it has come down to has been the instinct when they walk on the field. And I'll tell you, I agree with Nick Saban 100%. When I watch them, here's the last part that he said, which I think is so interesting. they He was talking about his previous teams. He said they wanted to prove something to everybody. And as time has gone on, I think that maybe just winning the game has become the focus. I'm telling you, I watch a ton of college football and you all do too. I'm not saying I'm any better, worse than any of you. But when I've watched Alabama over the last couple of years, I got to be honest, even two, three years ago, that 2020 team that ran through the COVID year and won a national championship, that team had a killer instinct. Najee Harris, Devontae Smith, Mac Jones, uh, some of the defensive players on that team, killer instinct. Obviously, some of the earlier era Saban teams had a killer instinct. This team so far has not had a killer instinct. As Nick Saban says, they get up early on opponents and then they let their foot off the gas. Happened last year at Florida. We're up big after the first quarter. Florida outscored them the rest of the game. We're up big early against Miami. Miami came back uh, you know, and outscored them, I believe, over the, the final three quarters of the game. As I said, the Arkansas game was close. The Tennessee game was basically close until Tennessee ran out of players. And so I have noticed, and I think many of you have noticed what Nick Saban has noticed. They don't have that killer instinct. You know who does have that killer instinct, by the way? Georgia. Watch Georgia over these last couple of weeks when they play Oregon, when they play South Carolina. They don't just want to beat you. They want to destroy you. They want to embarrass you. And so I bring it up because... This is the key to Alabama. It's not can they develop this wide receiver or the O-line or this defensive player. It's are they going to come out with that mentality, to be, as Nick Saban said, hateful competitors. The players seem to have gotten the message. Whether they take advantage of it or not, we'll see. But I am just telling you, if all of those players play the way that they claim that they are ready to play, that they got the message, that they're practicing different, that they're ready different for this Arkansas game. Be very afraid, Arkansas fans. And I'll take this step further. Be very worried, college football fans, because I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, this Alabama team is the most talented, I believe, in college football. And if they start to play to it with an edge to them, if they start to play like hateful competitors, as Nick Saban said, that is a scary, scary world for the rest of college football. All right, so what I want to do, take a quick break. I do want to come back. We'll wrap on the Memphis basketball story. How about the Memphis Tigers there uh, getting a, a slap on the wrist from the NCA? I actually think this is a good thing. I'm going to explain why that is next.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
2: I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. I do want to switch gears. Wasn't really planning on talking as much college hoops as we have talked this week. But on, obviously, look, Tuesday's show, we talked a little bit about the season ahead. Remember, practices opened on Monday, so we kind of hit some big storylines. But Tuesday, there was a genuinely big piece of news that dropped concerning the Memphis Tigers. Now, Memphis was one of these teams involved in the FBI probe, which is now five years old. And when I say five years old, I'm not being hyperbolic. This week is actually the five-year anniversary of when that first initial FBI raid happened. Uh, Schools and coaches, they, they had their office, you know, coaches are being arrested at their homes. We don't know what's going on. Well, fast forward, it's been five years and there still has not been resolution in some of these cases. Well, Memphis was one of the schools that as of this week, had not heard back on their final punishment and they got it on Tuesday courtesy of both the NCAA but remember the IARP which is the independent Counsel, which was brought in by the NCAA to investigate these punishments. Well fast forward Memphis gets their punishment and I'll just tell you this to call it a slap on the wrist is an insult to every wrist slap that has ever been slapped across the world since the beginning of time, okay? Memphis, this is their punishment for the alleged payment by Penny Hardaway. It's not even alleged. It happened, and I'll explain why in a minute. From the payment of $11,000 from Penny Hardaway when he was a high school coach in Memphis to James Wiseman, the the punishment is this. It is three years probation and a $5,000 fine. No coach suspension. No coach being forced to be fired or resigned no nca tournament ban no scholarship reductions. And so what I will tell you is a couple things. One, good for Memphis. Two, I think this is a good day for college sports. Everybody's been telling me for years, don't punish the current players, don't punish the school, like like whatever. Good day for them, good day for all of you who've been telling me the punishment should fit the crime. And then finally, what I would also say is it's a great day to be Arizona, Louisville, LSU, Kansas the schools that are still waiting on their punishment from the NCAA and the IRAP. So let me get into this really quick. And as a quick background, and I do think the background here is important, even though it's five years old. As I just said a minute ago, this punishment stems from the recruitment of James Wiseman back in 2017 and 2018. And why that's important is because basically what the NCAA found and what isn't even in question, I just said it a minute ago, but it's not even in question. Penny Hardaway, when he was a high school basketball coach in the city of Memphis, paid $11,000 in change for James Wiseman and his family to move from Nashville, where they were originally from, to Memphis for James Wiseman to come to Memphis and play for Penny Hardaway as a high school coach. So this doesn't have to do with Penny as a college coach, Penny this, Penny that, James Wiseman as a Memphis Tiger. Why that is important is for the following reason. It's important because for years since this whole quote unquote scandal first broke, what the NCAA has been arguing is that no, Penny Hardaway did not pay James Wiseman's family as the head coach of the Memphis Tigers basketball program. But because Penny Hardaway had previously donated to the University of Memphis as a prominent alum, as a former NBA player, uh, obviously, you know, he made millions. So I would assume he has a lot of disposable income but he gave a million dollars back in 2008 to the University of Memphis. He was considered in the NCAA's eyes a booster. And so because of it, this was in the eyes of the NCAA, a booster paying a high school recruit who then went to that booster's alma mater. And so why this, this story is absolutely fascinating. If you love the nerdy behind the scenes college sports stuff, this is fascinating. Because remember what I told you a second ago, this punishment today, which was an insult to slap on the wrist, slaps on the wrist. It did not come from the NCAA. It came from the IARP. And if you remember when all this FBI stuff happened, Condoleezza Rice was brought in and in charge of a commission to fix college sports. And the one thing that she and her group said was, we need to stop having the NCAA investigate their own, do their own investigations, Right. It's not fair that the NCA is doing the investigation and then they're handing out the punishment. They are the judge, jury and executioner. And nowhere else in society do we have that. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the person that, you know, like, like there's nowhere else in, in the world that that happens where, um, you know, a criminal defense lawyer then gets to decide on what the um, you know, what the punishment for a criminal is if he's found guilty. That doesn't happen in the real world, but that's what the NCA was doing. So why this is important in my eyes is because the IARP was brought in to be an independent counsel and that's exactly what they did rather than making up their own facts or taking loose facts and trying to put them together and make it a thing that isn't really a thing. What the IARP did was kind of use the facts, but also common sense to make their judgment on Memphis. I think that is very important. Listen, throughout the, listen, you could go back 50 years, 40 years. Jerry Tarkadian, I've said this before. Jerry Tarkadian has been talking about this for years. The NCA kind of, you know, putting two and two together, and it doesn't really make sense, but they're making this assumption. And basically what the IARP said when it came to Memphis was they just used common sense. They said, yes, Penny Hardaway gave money to Memphis in 2008, okay? When he did that, James Wiseman was nine or 10 years old. Penny Hardaway did not hatch a plan in 2008 and decide, you know what, I'm going to give to this school so that in 10 years from now, I can get myself into a position to be the basketball coach and pay recruits to come to this school to play basketball. It doesn't make sense. He gave the money in 2008. There was no intention of somehow using this as a way to lure recruits to the school. That just, it didn't make sense. And so what the IARP said was they basically said, what the NCAA has refused to say for years. Yes, maybe some bad stuff happened, but based on the information that we have, and by the way, maybe bad stuff didn't happen because Memphis fans are going to get on me. Oh my God, you don't like my school. No, what what the IARP did was they looked at the facts and they basically just said, look, based on what we have, nothing bad happened, nothing wrong happened. We're not going to punish the school. We're not going to punish the current players and we're not going to punish uh, the head coach who was involved. And I think that's perfectly fair. Again, Penny Hardaway donated 10 years ago. What Penny Hardaway did as a high school coach is independent of what he did as a college coach. And that's not under the NCAA's purview. And I think that's what the IARP said. So to me, first of all, this is a victory for college sports in general. And listen, we don't know what the future of college sports is going to look like, right? We're trying to restructure everything in college sports. We don't know if there's even going to be NCAA. We don't know if there's going to be an NCAA let alone NCA investigations, let alone NCA punishments. The IARP is actually going away after these cases. But why this is important is because we finally have an outside counsel, even if it's just for these four or five cases, that basically, again, is looking at the facts, looking at the details. And rather than trying to loosely piece things together, they are just judging based on what we know. As I saw the announcement on Monday, on Tuesday, I couldn't help but think one thing. How different would college sports be if this IARP had been around forever? Like if it had been around since 1960, how many schools that we think of as cheating or they got caught or punishment or this or that? How many schools would you just look at the facts and say, you know what? I don't really know. I'll give you a quick example. First of all, the Oklahoma State case in this FBI case, as I've talked about many times, you look at the facts in that one. A player took like $200, paid it back. The assistant coach was fired. Oklahoma State got a year's worth of a postseason ban. Do you think that happens with the IARP? No. The IARP would have looked at facts and basically said, you know what? Punishment doesn't fit the crime. The punishment has been handed down, whatever. I'll give you another example. I remember years ago reading the Reggie Bush case when it came to USC and all that stuff. And there was a coach named Todd McNair. You can look him up. He's still coaching right now in the NFL. He's been basically blackballed from college football. But if you actually go back and read the Reggie Bush case, he was the running backs coach at USC when Reggie Bush was there. There was some, you know, the NCA tried to basically put two and two together and say, well, you called this guy at this time, so you must have known. He has been in the middle of a lawsuit with the NCA for 10 years trying to clear his name. And so this is why the IARP was put into place. And I'm happy to see that Pen- uh, Memphis and Penny Hardaway are not being punished based on the facts that we have. What I would also say I don't care whether you like Penny Hardaway or not. For those of you who have been saying for years, do not punish the current players, I'm glad the current players aren't being punished. Listen, Memphis only has about two or three guys back from last year's NCAA tournament roster. Most of the new players are freshmen and more realistically transfers. Many of them only have one year left. Many of them came to Memphis to compete for an NCAA tournament bid. So I am glad that those players are not being punished and those players are going to have an opportunity to still compete for an NCAA tournament bid. And then finally, what I would also say, you know who this is a great day for? It's not just Memphis. It's Louisville. It's Arizona. It's LSU. It's Kansas. These schools that are being currently investigated by the IARP. Listen, I've just talked about it for the last 10 minutes. I'm not going to keep going over it. But the IARP seems intent on focusing on the facts, focusing on what we know. And also, by the way, I would assume... A school like Louisville, who fired Rick Patino, who fired Tom Jurich, who basically self-imposed an NCAA tournament ban, I would assume the IARP is going to look at them in a favorable light. Take it a step further. Arizona, we've talked about it. Got rid of Sean Miller. postseason ban in 2021 when they would have made the NCAA tournament. I would assume this is a great day for, for Arizona as well. Now, LSU Kansas, that could be a little bit of a different deal. Kansas is interesting because I've told you for years, Bill Self is on the record texting booster, uh, not boosters, excuse me, Adidas reps about setups and this and that. I don't know how the IARP is going to judge that. And LSU is a wild one because Will Wade is accused of all sorts of stuff. But to say the least, some of the people doing the accusing are not the most trustworthy of, uh, of resources. So uh, I am curious to see what it means going forward. But I'll just tell you this really quick. If I am a Louisville fan, if I am an Arizona fan, I feel great today about what the Memphis punishment means for us. I think those two schools specifically will be fine. But Memphis basketball, you talk about dodging a bullet. They are moving on. They can put it behind them. And I'll tell you this. For all of you who have told me for years, let the punishment fit the crime. I am happy that Memphis got the punishment that they did. But that said, I do think it is time for me to get out. Before we get out of here, I want to remind you, make sure to subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Apple Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to subscribe on YouTube. New episodes go up every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time. If you miss it on podcast or if you have downloaded on podcast, but go back and listen on YouTube, uh, Aaron Torres, you can find me on YouTube. Very easy to find me there. Um, make sure to rate and review the show. If you can go on the page and give me a quick rating and review, it really does help. Uh, A couple of you are still asking, we're going to get a new mic this week. We're hopefully going to get any, um, you know, I don't think the sound is terrible, but I think it it will be better by the end of the week. And then I think we just rock and roll. October is always a busy month on this show. Cannot wait. By the way, we're getting closer to college basketball. So I think it's going to be a really fun couple weeks and months on this show. And I appreciate your guys' support. That is all for our Monday episode of the AirTour Sports Podcast. And it is time for me to get out of here. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel Hates My Voice. Shout out to JJ Redick, you F-head. Unblock me. I'll be back on Tuesday. New episode of the Aaron Torres Sports
0: Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com.
1: 18 plus.